Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys, episode 169, The Tallest Building in New York, A Short History. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is sponsored by Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, phone, or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Boys. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, and I have just returned from Europe, where I've seen with my very own eyes co-host Tom Myers get married in an unbelievable, beautiful area of southern France. It was actually an incredible ceremony. It was sort of like a week-long thing with with all these friends and family um, in this beautiful, bucolic area called Luzon. Believe it or not, there was not a single pun or play on words the entire time. So maybe I better check to make sure it was Tom. But he's on his honeymoon right now, and we'll be back for the next show. Here in New York, there are a few major, many would say, distressing changes that are happening in the city right now. Gentrification patterns in neighborhoods all over New York are hiking rent prices, driving out not only longtime residents, but a great many beloved businesses. Okay, don't get me started on this, but these changes are not only occurring horizontally along the streets and avenues of New York, but vertically. Throughout New York, a surge of slinky, super tall condominiums, these narrow glass towers, are rapidly rising to compete with the classic skyscrapers of yore. This is a battle for attention along one of New York's most valuable assets, its skyline. Late in 2013, the tallest building in America became One World Trade Center, rising from the footprint of the original World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan and coming in at a very calculated 1,776 feet thanks to its gleaming needle at top. So, as a recognition of this newcomer to the Manhattan skyline, I thought I'd give you a little rundown of the 11 skyscrapers that have preceded it that have been called New York's tallest, using statistics from the New York Skyscraper Museum. In many cases, these buildings were really the world's tallest building at the time. Veritable trophies held aloft by successful businessmen celebrating their various enterprises, whether they be newspapers, sewing machines, retail stores, or automobiles. So follow along on this crawl up to the sky as I present to you a short history of the tallest buildings in New York.
few caveats before I begin the show here. We'll specifically be talking about commercial, residential, or regular use buildings, and not monuments, amusements, or ceremonial buildings, although I'll make a mention of a few here along the way. This is strictly a show about height, the most striking feature of a building on the New York skyline, and not about its capacity or volume. There are many buildings with a greater amount of square footage than some of the structures I'll talk about here. To our European listeners, I apologize. I will be speaking in feet and not meters. And finally, I know there's a controversy over some of these buildings regarding antennas or needles, which some would argue artificially render a few of these buildings with a height that some don't think it really achieves. In theory, if you wanted to, you could just slap a 1,500-foot needle on top of a short building somewhere, but I think that just seems tacky. This antenna debate is literally over a century old, but we will go forward here, including antennas as part of the stated height. Now, nobody was really paying much attention to the height of buildings in New York over 225 years ago. The city, and the country for that matter, was struggling to get on its feet. The New York skyline in 1783 would have been a mast of shipping vessels docked along the pier of the East River. The tallest buildings at this time would have been sugar houses owned by wealthy families like the Rhinelanders and the Van Cortlands, four- to five-story warehouses that held imported sugar products. It had actually been the size of these buildings that made them so attractive to the British in 1776 during their occupation of the city during the Revolutionary War. These sugar houses were refitted as prisons for rebellious American soldiers and conspirators. So size and height in this case came to mean something quite ominous. Flash forward 70 years later to 1846. New York was now a rising financial capital, a bedrock of American wealth, thanks to the Erie Canal and the railroads, and a newly minted wealthy elite benefited from this prosperity. The upper crust wanted a city that resembled a European capital, their customs inspired by those from Paris or London. And what those cities had were soaring cathedrals made centuries before, houses of worship which could be seen for miles, man-made structures to compete and even overshadow any natural beauty surrounding them. Churches were where New York's upper class congregated and was where their money was often spent. Remember, the most exclusive families during this period actually rented out pews in their favorite churches. The first Trinity Church at Broadway and Wall Street had burned down during the Great Fire of 1776, and its replacement church eventually proved inadequate for the rich congregants. So in the 1840s, Richard Upjohn, who would become America's great Gothic revival architect, was commissioned to design a towering new church on the spot. For the first time, the masts of the East River were challenged with a grand sight inland, the spire of the new Trinity Church standing 281 feet, now the tallest structure in Manhattan. At its completion in 1846, one historian wrote, quote, The tower and steeple at the east end of the house engages the eyes of the beholder. It must be considered a noble specimen of architecture and a fine ornament to that part of the city. Other spires, many designed by Upjohn himself, sprouted up all over New York at this time, and within the decade, the first skyline emerged, that of a curious forest of church tops. No permanent building in New York would go higher than Trinity for almost 45 years. Permanent, that is. For just seven years after Trinity's completion in 1853, New York hosted the fabled Crystal Palace Exposition, a grand technological fair bringing together a host of American inventors held in the area of today's Bryant Park. 
featured at the exposition was a cone-shaped observation deck called the Ladding Observatory. Visitors could take an exhausting walk to the very top of the observatory and gaze out over the city from its highest elevation, slightly over 300 feet in the sky, nearly 200 feet taller than Trinity. The observatory burnt down three years later, and so too, in fact, did the entire Crystal Palace Exposition. Another rival to the Trinity Church Spire came close in the early 1880s, rising up out of the East River. But the towers of the Brooklyn Bridge only came up from the water 276.5 feet, a few feet shorter than Trinity. The church's dominance upon the skyline would eventually be overtaken, but not by structures of transportation or amusement, but rather one of journalism. The revolution had already begun here in New York, but also in Chicago, a city that would not only be New York's economic rival, but its companion in innovating the idea of building vertically. The word skyscraper would soon be coined to describe these unique buildings, rectangular structures that rose uniformly upward, towers of brick and terracotta. There were two critical key elements here to a skyscraper, a steel skeletal frame to support the weight of a rising building, and of course a method of getting people up and down from that tall structure, the elevator. Now, the elevator is an old invention, of course, but it was at that aforementioned Crystal Palace exposition that inventor Elisha Otis debuted the twist that would make skyscrapers possible, the safety elevator, a set of brakes which would prevent elevator cars from falling. Otis died in 1861 and never got to see the architectural revolution that he helped pave the way for. Tall buildings were soon constructed in Chicago, New York, and St. Louis. In 1870, at 120 Broadway, rose the spectacular Equitable Life Building, the home of a life insurance firm and considered by many to be New York's first skyscraper. But it wasn't tall enough. It sat just catty-cornered from Trinity Church, and even then, almost by unspoken arrangement, it was clear that Trinity was still taller. What did it mean to build something taller than New York's greatest church? There was something gauche happening, of course, at least early critics thought so. But was there something even immoral about it? That was the question posed in 1890 when a skyscraper finally risked God's wrath and rose above Trinity. The new headquarters of the New York World newspaper, built by Joseph Pulitzer. The rust-red New York World building, sometimes called the Pulitzer Building, at 99 Park Row, sat at City Hall on the entrance to the new Brooklyn Bridge. Designed by George Post, it was 309 feet tall and was built at a cost of $2 million. Its most notable features included deep basements equipped with printing presses and the gold dome on top which held, what else, the personal office of Joseph Pulitzer. Pulitzer was a daring publisher who would do anything to sell newspapers, a contriver of the practices of yellow journalism. This might be considered the first skyscraper competition ever in New York, as Pulitzer's chief concern here was to build bigger than his two newspaper rivals who sat right there at Park Row, often called Newspaper Row, the New York Tribune, and the New York Times. Now, use whatever analogy you'd like involving the competition of men trying to outdo each other in size, but I can't help but think that the skyscraper races that we would later see were inspired a little bit by the natural rivalries among these competing newspapers. George Post was actually the designer of both the World and the original New York Times building on Park Row, 
Pulitzer bribed Post with a $50,000 commission and a $10,000 bonus if he would make his building larger than the Times building. Post said of the challenge, quote, It would be an interesting problem to construct two buildings in sight of each other for rival papers and to make the buildings as different as the politics of the papers. I mention that quote because these early skyscrapers would take on, however subtly, the personalities of the businesses and the men behind them. A footnote, the New York Times, of course, would have the last laugh when its publisher, much later, moved the paper to new offices in Longacre Square, later to take on the name of the newspaper itself. Lower Manhattan, the financial district, was zoned almost entirely for business by this time. The vestiges of old offices swept away, replaced with a garden of new skyscrapers. In 1894, the World Building was usurped by our second skyscraper title holder here, the Manhattan Life Insurance Building, at 348 feet to its lantern top, at 64-66 Broadway. The Manhattan Life was known for its octagonal tower, which doubled as a signal station, a lighthouse, and a headquarters for the New York Weather Bureau. Neither Pulitzer's World Building nor the Manhattan Life Insurance Building are standing today. In fact, in 1955, the World Building was knocked down to build an automobile entrance to the Brooklyn Bridge. But the next building on our list, completed in 1899, is still around. The Park Row Building, which arrives at 391 feet, and it's at 15 Park Row. This one was funded and built by a consortium of businessmen, including August Belmont Jr., the benefactor of the New York subway system and chairman of the Interborough Rapid Transit Company. The Park Row building gains its record-setting height here with the help of two cupolas on either side, clad in copper and reminiscent of a Portuguese cathedral. These were actually Manhattan's original twin towers that was a nickname for them. But these cupolas were actually apartments. One of them was home to Tammany Hall's old boss, Croker. The Park Row building managed to survive to modern times despite some venomous critiques in its day. One critic bellowed, quote, New York is the only city in which such a monster would be allowed to rear itself, unquote. Horned Monster was in fact another of its nicknames. Now, if you're looking at a map of these buildings, the ones I've mentioned thus far, you're noticing how close they are to each other. Essentially, the buildings surrounding City Hall and down Broadway to Trinity Church. It's a very short distance. By 1907, this was, according to the Tribune, the highest-priced half-mile of real estate in the world. An intriguing newcomer arrived here in 1908 and the fourth skyscraper to take the title of tallest building in New York. The Singer Building at 149 Broadway, coming in at a mighty 612 feet, was designed by Ernest Flagg and was the embodiment of the Singer Sewing Machine Company, whose devices were automating the jobs of thousands of Manhattan seamstresses. The building was ornate, pretentiously Beaux-Arts, richly red, and weird. Its height came from a narrow, needle-like tower that protruded from the 12th floor mansard roof. I always think when I see the pictures that it looks like a turtle. Later, the singer would have the infamous distinction of being the tallest building to ever be purposefully demolished, cleared away in 1967, four years after the destruction of Penn Station. Now, just to clarify, of course, I've been focusing only on New York buildings, but I am aware that there were a few moments in this period when other American city projects like Philadelphia City Hall and certain Chicago skyscrapers would briefly take the title of tallest building in the world during the Gilded Age. 
Chicago would lend New York its greatest architects and construction firms to build many of our greatest treasures, including the Flatiron Building. Designed by Daniel Burnham, it was not in New York's pricey business district downtown, but at Madison Square, at the most glamorous intersection of Broadway, 5th Avenue, and 23rd Street, closer to the department stores of Ladies Mile and the luxurious residences of upper-class New York than to the darkening canyon of Lower Manhattan. The Flatiron was never the tallest, but it did set a standard for beauty, paired with the building that sat on the opposite end of the park, Stanford White's Madison Square Garden. For architects, the square became a place where skyscraper architecture was practically required to be breathtaking, and thus better appreciated by the masses. And so it was here in 1909 that the fifth building, to call itself the tallest, was erected. The Metropolitan Life Insurance Tower at 700 feet at Madison and 23rd Street, and still there today. This building by Napoleon Lebrun was classic New York, with clock faces on all sides and a golden top hat. After the Eiffel Tower, it became the highest wireless telegraph antenna in the world. The race for the sky was now at full steam. The New York Sun declared in 1911 that the first building at 1,000 feet would be completed by 1950. It would actually happen far earlier, in 1929. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. If the early skyscrapers brought business moguls into the thought process of creating the New York skyline, it was those around Madison Square that confirmed that those could be beautiful features of the city as well. 
Both these concepts were on display in 1910 when the retail king Frank Woolworth brought the visionary architect Cass Gilbert in on a project to erect a glowing candle of a skyscraper next to City Hall to be the tallest along a canyon of so many tall but rather flat structures. It took years to complete, but by its opening in April of 1913, the Woolworth Building, at 792 feet, became an icon of American capitalism, a fabulous symbol of limitless New York real estate. Its technical achievements, which were impossible to imagine a decade prior, only reinforced the themes of the day here, that money could defy gravity. Advertisements to fill the office space in the Woolworth Building made use of its unique place in American commerce, said one ad, quote, Customers will never overlook your store if it is in the Woolworth Building. The sight and thought of the world's greatest structure will remind them of you and your store, unquote. The Woolworth would remain the world's tallest building for over 16 years and is undeniably one of America's greatest buildings. But it's also a little bit of a throwback because everything changed almost 100 years ago, not because of a great innovation or a great architect, but because of a funny local zoning law. Manhattan Life, the Park Row Building, the Singer Building, the Metropolitan Life Tower, and the Woolworth. These are New York's finest examples of skyscrapers made in the unregulated era before 1916. The Woolworth Building is designed so that the entire face of the structure comes to the front of the street. Actually, all the buildings that I've discussed actually do this. This creates Lower Broadway's canyon effect. Along the side streets, however, these sorts of buildings blocked out sunlight and air when the streets were much narrower, and soon many streets became darkened and extremely unpleasant. Hardly the effect the spirited Woolworth advertiser I read earlier was going for. When a second, taller, equitable building was completed in 1915, just across the street from Trinity Church, the mammoth gloom it created inspired a new zoning law in New York the following year. Requiring buildings in designated, quote, height districts be designed with setback, or more popularly coined the wedding cake style. Basically, buildings that receded the higher that they lifted into the sky. Far from hampering innovation, however, this unusual law came about at the right time. Right as architects and designers were prepared to discard the classical influences of the Beaux Arts movement, to move away from French and Italian ornate grandiosity into something uniquely modern. Influential designers like Hugh Ferris, who had worked with Cass Gilbert on the Woolworth Building, mixed the building setback concept with Art Deco styles, creating the first skyscraper style that was purely American. At the same time, thanks to rising rents, the center of construction shifted in New York from crowded and claustrophobic Lower Manhattan to the new center of the Jazz Age, Midtown Manhattan. Inspired by the opening of the new Grand Central Terminal in 1913, new skyscraper projects radiated up Park Avenue and along 42nd Street, soon creating a new business district that was unlike any place in the world. 
I just can't imagine what it would have been like in 1929, for instance, to depart a train from the terminal and emerge onto the street and see all this construction work going on and see already completed buildings like such marvels as the Channon Building at 42nd and Lexington or Raymond Hood's Art Deco Classic Office Building for the New York Daily News at 42nd and 3rd Avenue, which both of these were completed in 1929. The battle between downtown and midtown was also playing out in the latest competition for the tallest building in New York. Two rival architects were looking to break the Woolworth Building's hold upon the skyline. In one corner, downtown, was J. Craig Severance, who was commissioned by the Bank of Manhattan. That, by the way, is the bank that was started in 1799 by Aaron Burr, incidentally. By the Bank of Manhattan to create a new structure that would lord over Wall Street itself. 40 Wall Street was cleared to become New York's tallest building. But in the other corner, i.e. Midtown, was his former partner, William Van Allen, who had been retained by a slightly more flamboyant figure, car mogul Walter Chrysler. Automobiles were on the rise, and Chrysler wanted the tallest building in New York, a giant of giants, to serve both as a symbolic advertisement for his products and also as a mythological testament to his own fame he was on the cover of Time magazine in 1928. For his part, Van Allen was ready to rewrite the architectural guidebook, wanting nothing to do with anything resembling his Beaux-Arts education, declaring, quote, No old stuff for me. No bestial copings of arches and columns and cornices. Chrysler and Van Allen, it would turn out, would have a surprise for New Yorkers. Severin and his patrons were so highly sensitive to what was going on up here at 42nd Street that they kept making the plans for their building taller and taller. And so in the fall of 1929, 40 Wall Street would indeed become the seventh skyscraper to call itself the tallest in New York at 927 feet. Its copper pyramid roof topped with a crystal ball and a flagpole, and still today a regular feature of the downtown skyline. But just a little bit later... On October 23rd, 1929, while the builders of 40 Wall Street were still patting themselves on the back, people noticed something strange that was happening at the top of that new building that Chrysler was building up on 42nd Street in what must be considered some of the greatest trolling ever in the history of architecture, a custom-built 185-foot spire was suddenly placed upon the top of the skyscraper and affixed in just a single day. This had been done very quietly, and it took people several days to realize that Van Allen's little surprise accessory had now made the Chrysler Building, which officially opened in April of 1930, the tallest building in New York at 1,046 feet. Is this cheating? If it is, it's the best kind of cheating because it's the kind that we all get to appreciate today. Of course, the Chrysler Building is one of the most photographed buildings in America and has become shorthand for the city of New York itself. Um, as for 40 Wall Street, today it's owned by Donald Trump. Meanwhile, a short distance south of the Chrysler Building, just a few blocks, New York's most famous hotel, the Waldorf Astoria, was being torn down. They moved it up to Park Avenue, of course, where it still is today. And from this footprint at 5th Avenue and 34th Street rose another skyscraper, but there was something sacrilegious about this for a great many. What had been the heart of elite society, location of the famous balls of the Mrs. Astor, the nucleus of the New York Gilded Age, well, it was now supposed to become a common skyscraper? 
This one, however, would not be common. Designed by William Lamb, this building had a unique individual in charge, former New York Governor Al Smith. Smith was a good friend of the man who principally funded the project, John Raskob, a former executive at General Motors, competitor, of course, of Chrysler, and a man who was so obsessed with the size of the building that he perhaps gave little thought to the fact that he would actually have to fill it later. Well, regardless, with Smith's participation, the building took on an official flair. Smith remarked, quote, This building will be the monument to the dignity, power, growth, and wealth of the imperial city of the Empire State. And so it was on May 1st, 1931, that the Empire State Building officially opened, 1,454 feet tall, the tallest building in the world, and the first building to ever surpass 100 floors. Now, over in Brooklyn, they were certainly not immune to this thirst for height either. And in 1929, the borough would get its very own glorious skyscraper, a building which would then be the tallest in Brooklyn for over 80 years. The Williamsburg Savings Bank building at Flatbush and Atlantic, today we call it One Hanson Place. It was 512 feet tall, almost a third of the size of the Empire State Building, and located in an area that the bank hoped would become, quote, the pivot point of Brooklyn's activity. But all these new projects ran into the consequences of the 1929 stock market crash and the advent of the Great Depression. No significant business district developed around the Williamsburg Savings Bank, and even the Empire State Building was nicknamed the Empty State Building for its lack of tenancy in the early years. The Depression and World War II would dampen the battle for height supremacy in New York, and with notable exceptions, of course, such as Rockefeller Center and the glittering RCA Building, Skyscrapers would mostly recede from that 1,000-foot line that had been crossed by the Chrysler and the Empire State. It would take another New York architectural shift to revive any interest in breaking the exalted status that the Empire State Building now had upon the skyline. In the 1950s, Park Avenue saw two innovative new skyscrapers, the Seagram Building and the Lever House, which built extremely tall, but without setbacks, but provided an open public plaza an empty space that would supposedly relieve any issues of light and air. This was the tower-in-the-park idea that was proposed by modernists like Le Corbusier, and many of these notions were incorporated into a later zoning law in New York in 1961. The script had flipped by this time. Now it was midtown Manhattan that was thriving and expensive. The businesses of lower Manhattan needed a major renewal project, something that could single-handedly bring renewed attention back downtown. This led to an unprecedented collaboration between public and private interests in 1961 between Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and David Rockefeller, the philanthropist son of the world's richest man who had once launched a similar project with Rockefeller Center 30 years before. The World Trade Center Towers, the first completed in 1970 and the second the following year, rewrote the look of New York City. Tower 1, the one with the spire, became the tallest building in the world at 1,727 feet, the height of six Trinity churches. It held this ranking for three years until the Sears Tower in Chicago was constructed in 1973. For a while, there would be no more height challenges posed in the New York City skyline. A new towering skyscraper style would come to dominate in the 70s and 80s, but the attention-grabbing would come from the unusual shapes or flashy materials, you know, buildings such as Midtown's Lipstick Building or Trump Tower. 
In 1990, a lone wolf rose from the neighborhood of Long Island City, One Court Square, or the Citigroup building, a green glass shaft completely unopposed on the skyline of Queens, becoming the borough's tallest building even to this day. After the World Trade Center was destroyed on September 11th, 2001, people wondered again about the idea of height. Would people feel comfortable again in super tall skyscrapers? Had we moved past an era where height remained an attractive feature of a building? Part of its acquiescence may have had something to do with the fact that America was no longer building the world's tallest structures. The architectural foundations created by the dreamers from New York and Chicago were now being built upon by global architects, creating massive towers in Asia and the Middle East. With the new One World Trade Center and the entire bevy of additional structures that will soon join it here very shortly, height has become an instrument of national pride, not personal ambition as it had been with Singer or Pulitzer or Woolworth. In November of 2013, the new One World Trade Center, a crystalline shaft of glass with a heavy piercing antenna on top, was declared America's tallest building by the Council of Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. All of this is to say, most of us have grown up with either the Empire State Building or the World Trade Center as the defining features, the maximum height of the New York City skyline. And we'll see if the new World Trade Center building can keep other buildings a sacred distance away from its height of 1,776 feet. Because the other extant buildings I've mentioned on the show have all either been dwarfed already or in great fear of it. The tallest building in Brooklyn right now is. 388 Bridge, a condominium. Other residential towers in Manhattan will break the 1,000 foot mark with ease. The one at 432 Park Avenue at the corner of 57th Street will actually swipe away the height of the Empire State Building, and others of similar size are forthcoming. So you, you can probably tell from my tone that I'm slightly critical of that, but that's Probably unfair of me, as many of the buildings that are famous for being tall, such as the Williamsburg Savings Bank or the Woolworth, for instance, have already been turned into residential buildings. The impetus for growth in this day and age is housing, not offices. Now, on the blog, I will post a current list, a list from the Council of Tall Buildings. It has a very Lord of the Rings feel to it, doesn't it? The Council of Tall Buildings. I、uh, have the current list of New York's tallest structures, which I will present there in a list form, as well as pictures of every building in New York that has ever held that title, and even a couple that have just come close. Now, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, leading provider of audiobook entertainment. So, since they've been the sponsor of the show, I've listened to audiobooks like a mad dog. I'm very pleased to say that we can offer you a special deal for listeners of the Bowery Boys podcast. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. That free audiobook download and 30-day trial is at audibletrial.com/slash/bowerboys. Now, I'm going to recommend a book to you that was an inspiration for this podcast, and is something I had reviewed on the blog a few months ago. This terrific book called Supreme City by Donald Miller, and on Audible, it's read by Jim Frangioni. Uh, it's an incredible book about the birth of the jazz age, but not so much. There's some stuff about prohibition and speakeasies and everything, but it really is about the creation of Midtown from the businesses on Fifth Avenue, some of the buildings that I've talked about, basically how New York transformed in the 1920s and specifically in the late 1920s into an extraordinary international city. 
It's also a book full of short anecdotes. Which actually, I would so I imagine it's a very good book to listen to in an audio book form. So please check that one out or any of the other books. That's audibletrial.com/slash/bowerboys. Thank you very much for listening to my tale of the tallest buildings in New York. In two weeks, Tom will return. I'm sure he'll regale us with his story of his honeymoon. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Oh,